So uh, tonight's reading is from Luke 6, uh, Luke 6 verses 17 to 49. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healed them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you who have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stood up in his heart. 
and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Uh, My name is Evan. Let's uh, pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you might take away from us any distraction now that might take away from us this wonderful opportunity to hear your words. Lord, soften our hearts so that we might not just listen, but that we might also be changed by what you say. Amen. Well, it seems to me that our culture today is obsessed with change, with progress. In the last 200 years or so of history, change has happened so rapidly and so radically that the word revolution has constantly been used to describe it. And so we have the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and to that we could add many other things. We could add the Agrarian Revolution, the Commercial Revolution, the Communications Revolution, the Consumer Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, the Financial Revolution, the Digital Revolution, the Gender Revolution, the AI Revolution, and probably several others that have occurred just in the time that I've been speaking now. Dramatic and constant upheaval of all of our existing spiritual, philosophical, political, economic and cultural norms has become the defining characteristic of the modern era. So much so that a a man called Alvin Toffler, he once wrote a book, a great little book called Future Shock. Um, And there he argued that uh, just as if you kind of picked someone up from suburban Perth and, say, dropped them into rural China or downtown Japan, just as they would experience a a huge culture shock as they were thrust into this completely new world, uh, he said, now people are beginning to experience future shock, uh, that the accelerated pace of technological and social change is doing the same thing, even as people stay in the same city and the same country and the same place, that there's just rapid and revolutionary change going on around us so much that life is robbed of all stability and permanence. And so they have the same sort of disconnection and disorientation, just as if they'd been thrust into a completely alien culture. Toffler predicted that this would mean that each generation would have a radically different set of values from the one that came before it often blaming each other for all the ills that they perceive in their world. In other words, Toffler predicted boomer versus millennial memes. But when did he predict all of this? 1970. And that's not only a long time before most of you are born, it's even a long time before I was born. Actually, not that long, but it was before I was born. (laughs) You know, the pace of change has only increased since then. Now, of course, a necessary part of the modern story is that everyone is a revolutionary now. We're either for whatever the latest revolution is, 
or we're against it and we're for the counter-revolution. We're for the status quo or even a return to the good old days. As each group races to define themselves as the oppressed minority so that they can cry out against the injustices that those above them uh, put upon them. And all of this leaves the Christian wondering how we're supposed to see ourselves what are we supposed to do in this, this world of perpetual revolution by the perpetually revolting? And into this comes the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 6 that we read. And here Jesus makes his case for revolution, for his revolution, for his kingdom, which is, he says in verse 20, the kingdom of God. And in the process, he gives us a glimpse of what it means to be a true revolutionary for Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to us about today. But let me just very quickly remind you all of kind of where we are in in Luke chapter 6 and give us a little bit of context. Because the need for revolution, the need for change was made as early as the beginning of Luke chapter 3. There in Luke chapter 3... Uh, Luke just even mentioned who was in power at the time, the politically corrupt, the tyrannically cruel, the morally degenerate. Uh, The case for change and the need for it was clear. But the opening chapters of Luke's gospel have made it very clear to us that the pages of history do not belong to the powerful, but that they belong to God. That history is about the right fulfillment of God's promises. And so said Jesus in his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, where he quoted from Isaiah 61. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The Son of God, he is saying, does not occupy a side of history. You cannot co-opt Jesus and say that he's either for or against the various human revolutions of our worlds. Jesus, instead, he perfects history. He fulfills God's promises and what God has said would happen by being the one who announces the good news and the time of the Lord's favour. Jesus himself is a revolution. But it has been surprising to see how different how mixed the reactions to Jesus' revolution have been over the last few chapters. The people of his own hometown, possibly even his own family, well, they tried to kill him just at the thought of it. And the crowds, they, they press in upon him, they swarm around him like shoppers looking for a Boxing Day sale, always wanting something. And the demons are drawn to him like sparks to a lightning rod. And the Pharisees have been harassing him, already they're staunch opponents of Jesus. They chased him through the fields, obsessing over food laws. They fumed in the synagogues over uh, the Sabbath day labor regulations. And Jesus, for his part, has been fairly obscure at times. Last year, he ans- last week, he answered them with um, stories about King David getting takeaway from the temple. And most of the time, he's spent hiding out in the mountains in true revolutionary fashion with his newly selected inner circle of 12 disciples who he's named apostles because they'll be the ones who go out and and spread the news of his revolution. Even though we're told just the verse before our reading in 6.16 that like so many revolutions, betrayal would come 
from one closest to Jesus. And it's here that we take up our our story today. In Luke chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus comes down from his mountain hideaway to a level plain uh, to give perhaps his most famous sermon. A sermon which it seems he gives on more than one occasion. Uh, This sermon on the plain in Luke chapter 6, I'm sure many of you noticed, is very, very similar to what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon in Matthew's chapters 5 to 7. And I take it that Jesus, he's an itinerant preacher and he goes to village to village, town to town and he preaches probably much of the same sermon to different audiences in slightly different forms. And so by doing so, Jesus makes the case for his revolution, the case for his kingdom. And he does so with a series of contrasts. I hope you saw that there. Jesus was always comparing one thing to another thing throughout the whole reading that we read. And by doing so, I think Jesus is not just making the case for his revolution, Jesus is making the case that his is the only revolution. He's making the case that actually every other revolution in human history has just been a reshuffling of the pieces on the board. It's just been a reshuffling of who is rich and who is poor, who is hungry and who is satisfied. Uh, Just changing who it is we ought to love, verse 32, or who it is we ought to judge, verse 37, or who we ought to follow in verse 40 and who is in fact a blind guide in verse 39. Uh, Jesus is saying that the more things change, the more they stay the same and that only he brings something genuinely new only he is new wine for new wineskins and so he proceeds to make his case for his revolution and teach us what a true revolutionary looks like and so you see there up on the outline the true revolutionary three things he teaches us first of all the true revolutionary will be rejected secondly the true revolutionary loves their enemies and lastly and perhaps most importantly the true revolutionary stands firm. So firstly then, the true revolutionary, they will be rejected. They will be rejected by people. Just scan your eyes down verses uh, 20 to 26, would you, just for a moment there. Because the lot of the true revolutionary is poverty, hunger, weeping and abuse. For their identity with the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of speaking about himself. And Jesus here, he's using very provocative language. The language of blessings and woes is very reminiscent of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the the language of, of blessings and curses. And what seems to hold this together is that, well, the blessings and the woes comes based on the relationship between the prophets of old and those that God sent those prophets to. And so it's really simple. You're blessed if you suffer for Jesus, the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Yours is the kingdom, he says in verse 20. And great is your reward in heaven, verse 23, he says, because that is how their ancestors treated the prophets of old. The true revolutionary suffers for Jesus just like God's prophets suffered at the hands of rebellious and hard-hearted Israel. However, he says, beware if you get a good hearing. Verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated 
the false prophets. You know that you're on the side of Jesus' revolution when your audience uh, treats you like they treated the prophets of old. You're in good company, but you also know you're in danger when no one is being offended and when no one is criticizing you. Because although the true revolutionary may be hungry now, verse 21, one day they will be satisfied. And those who weep will laugh. But on the other hand, in verse 24, those who are rich now, well, they have already received their comfort. The well-fed now will go hungry. When Jesus' revolution is complete, there will be a dramatic reversal of fortunes. And it's looking forward to that future that gives the true revolutionary power to live in the present, even whilst they are being rejected and going hungry for Jesus. Now, of course, at this point, it would be very easy to get a a martyr complex about that rejection. But Jesus actually won't let us do that. Because the second thing that we see about a true revolutionary is that they love their enemies, in verse 27. And they do good to those who hate them. Uh, No, Jesus says, far from taking this as an opportunity to gloat in our persecution in a tempest of self-righteousness, a true revolutionary actually and self-sacrificially loves those who are rejecting us and even heaping abuse upon us, praying for those who insult us. What an extraordinary thing. What an incredible challenge. I was just, I was thinking this week, the thought came into my head, I thought, imagine what Twitter would be like, or sorry, X, whatever I was, I'm supposed to call it this week. You know, imagine what Twitter would be like if, if that's the way people treated each other. Imagine what social media would be like. Imagine what the world would be like if when someone disagrees with you, you're generous towards them and loving towards them. When someone hates you or persecutes you, that you actually... Uh, respond by by not retaliating, but loving them and and praying for them. What an extraordinary thing that Jesus is saying here. And notice that the love of a true revolutionary is not merely an exchange. It's not a, a transaction. Revolutionary love expects nothing in return. Have a look at verse 32. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. See, so much of what we call love in our world today is in fact just reciprocity. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's not really love so much as it is an investment in people that we think one day might be able to pay us back. Its ultimate object is not the good of the other, but in fact the good of self. It's selfish love, really. It's often elitist. It's loving only those to whom we, we deem as being worthy of love because of their worth to me. And even when it is looking like people are are, are loving the unworthy, so often it's just a show. It's virtue signalling. It's loving others as a political act in front of an audience to show that I'm on the right or the left side of whatever is the latest revolution 
and therefore worthy of being loved in the same lukewarm way. But not so the revolutionary love of a revolutionary for Jesus. Verse 35, you can't say it better than the Lord Jesus. Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. See, the golden rule should leave its mark on our flesh. The true revolutionary is renowned for sacrificial generosity and and costly mercy. Even down in verse 37, they forgive rather than reject. They do not judge. They do not condemn. They forgive because they have been forgiven. The true revolutionary always extends the hand of hope to those who would harm them. And perhaps the greatest gift a revolutionary can give to those who despise and reject them is the gift of forgiveness. Because after all, is that not what God has done for us? Do you remember the words of Romans chapter 5 verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... That is, whilst we were still God's enemies, whilst we were still rejecting God and despising God and insulting God, Christ died for us. That same undeserved love that God has shown to us who were rejecting him is the same undeserved love that we show to those who reject us. We don't just treat people as we ourselves would like to be treated. We treat others as we have been treated by God. It's the loving kindness of God towards us that is the secret of the true revolutionary's love for others. And so finally then, the third thing the true revolutionary will do is stand firm. And here, of course, it would be easy to imagine that uh, what is meant by that is that somehow we muster up the power and the strength in ourselves to, to stand firm, even while we are being rejected and even while we are doing the extraordinary thing of loving those who reject us. But that's not actually what Jesus means. Because for Jesus, whether or not we will stand firm depends upon the one that we are following. It depends upon the one that we are listening to. We're all following someone, Jesus says in verse 40. In fact, he says, you end up becoming like the one you are following, which is always a a rather sobering thing uh, to say to someone who is themselves a leader. Um, And if we choose to follow the blind guide in verse 39, well, not only will they fall but they'll take us with them as well. And actually, so often we're we're unqualified to lead even each other because even as we try and take the speck out of someone else's eye, there is an enormous two-by-four in our own. We're hypocrites and unfit to lead each other. But the point of all this is made much clearer, I think, in verses 47 to 49. 
If we are going to stand firm, we need to follow the right person and listen to their words. Verse 47. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck. That house could not shake it, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, this parable, it always amuses me now because this is Perth. Nothing's built on rock. Everything's built on sand. There is no foundations. And, of course, that's Jesus' point, isn't it? Without me, he's saying, everything is built on sand. Nothing is built on anything firm. Nothing is built on anything permanent. Nothing is built on anything that will last. And if you follow anyone else or anything else, then everything will collapse. But the true revolutionary will not fall because they have a stability that only Jesus can provide. The true revolutionary, they they rest on a foundation that says that uh, the truth is, is not an idea, the truth is a person. A person who came into our world and not just taught us, but died for us to pay for our sin. And who rose again from death to show that he'd won the great victory over even our greatest of enemies. And amidst the chaos of culture wars and identity politics, the true revolutionary has that unshakable strength of following the one who is unshakable. Of following Jesus. They have an identity that is built on Jesus and his words not on the brittle edifice of self-determination or self-actualization. They have an identity that is based on what God has graciously done for us in Jesus and not in somehow what we might be able to do for ourselves by our own meagre efforts and weak powers. And that means that the true revolutionary can face rejection and even abuse that comes from without, even as they are strengthened within. And that means that the true revolutionary can respond to that with love and prayer and kindness. They have that firm foundation that means they can stand against all the storms that unceasingly sweep across us in life with increasing regularity. Many times I've seen people, seen people who have heard that revolutionary message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps they've followed it even for a time. But ultimately they reject it because of something they wanted now. A career they wanted now or a relationship they wanted now or a pleasure that they wanted now. And so they've made themselves slaves to the ever-changing kingdom of now. I have two sisters and 
They're both wonderful sisters. I love them both dearly. They're wonderful aunties to, to my kids. Uh, but one of my sisters, she, growing up, uh, through the teenage years, even into university, she was a very active Christian. She was vice president of a Christian group on, on the campus that she went to. She went to beach mission after beach mission after beach mission. She was really involved. Uh, but she wanted to be a writer. She wanted to be a writer. And after university, uh, she began to realise that what the words of Jesus said to her and what the words of, of this world that she wanted to be a part of said to her were actually incompatible. And so I watched her over many years, over issue by issue by issue, just kind of, rather than listen to Jesus, she listened to the world's. And so she stopped following Jesus. She walked away from him. And now she's become very adept at avoiding the topic of Christmas. And I've seen that same story play out time and time again. And the truth is that the words of this world are very seductive. They're very powerful. Many of you are hearing them right now at university or in those early years of your career when it seems like the whole world is on offer before you. All you need to do is listen to their words. And the truth is, if you do listen to their words, you will be rewarded. You probably will do well in life. You probably will be successful in your career and successful in your relationships. But will you stand? Will you stand when the flood comes? When the torrent comes? When the storm comes? Because you'll notice, Jesus didn't say that the one who built their house upon the rock, that their house would stand if the flood comes, or if the torrent comes, or if the storm comes. Jesus said, when? When the flood comes, when the storm comes, when the torrent comes. Because even though the, the revolutions of our world, they'll keep coming. We'll keep rearranging who is rich and poor. We'll keep rearranging who is hungry and who is satisfied. We'll keep rearranging who you're supposed to love and who you're supposed to judge. And you can hope and you can, you can even pray that somehow you might end up on top in that next revolution. But you will not stand when the flood comes. For there is a storm coming. You can't mention the flood in verse 48 there without remembering the flood of Noah's day. And the promise of the flood of God's judgment that Jesus warned us is coming and even died to rescue us from. For who will stand on that day, Jesus says. Where is solid ground to be found when the torrent of God's wrath is poured out? On humanity who has rejected him. Whose house, indeed, whose life will be saved on that day? And Jesus says, on that day, on that day when my revolution is complete, only the one who has listened to me will stand. Only the one who has trusted in me will stand. Only the one who has planted themselves on Jesus, who has listened to his word. And no, it's not going to mean an easy life. 
The last thing in the world that Jesus is teaching about us in this passage is how to have a good and happy and successful life. In fact, if I've understood it correctly, he's telling us exactly how to have the opposite. But what does it matter on the last day? What does it matter when the flood comes? The one who will stand is the one who trusts in Jesus and listens to his words. Jesus is not just saying, I am another revolution. Jesus is saying, I am the only revolution. And my kingdom is the kingdom that will last forever. See what Jesus is saying? This is how important my words are. My words are life and death. My words are heaven and hell. My words are eternity. And so I say to you, listen to him. Listen to him and you can be sure. Sure that yes, we will be rejected for following him. Sure that yes, we'll need to respond to that rejection with love and with kindness. But most important of all, we can be sure that because of Jesus, we will stand. For we are not on the right or the wrong side of history. But when we listen to Jesus, we are on Jesus' side of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your gracious love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We praise you that in him we can have absolute certainty. Certainty that we will be rejected for following him. Certainty that we must and we can love those who reject us. But most important of all, Lord, we thank you that we can have certainty that we can stand. Not just now, but for eternity.